Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who, remem who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant, all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Donald. Well, we are continuing in a series called Reordered Love. And uh, if you're new with us, this is part three. And uh, we're continuing in a series, and I'll post this on the city um, uh, the, where the series is going, kind of subjects that are coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about how Jesus speaks about our loves and continuing on with this series. This is the series where you hear some wacky stories about my childhood. Uh, you hear about a child who was uh, uh, possessed by desire and uh, cra crazy stories uh, that probably uh, I'll only tell one time and then we'll move on. Uh, but uh, we are uh, asking a question out loud. In, uh, in this series, uh, is Augustine right? Is he correct? And here's the question. Is he right when he says, before you believe and before you ever think, you love? Before you ever put your mind in gear, before you ever put your heart in gear to believe something, there's something about us that we are just moving toward what we love. We imagine a target for our loves, we frame habits around uh, that target. We're heading toward the target. Habits are formed. And uh, we, we love first. I've described it as we feel first. I, I'm, I'm a young boy, and I feel things. Uh, as a young boy, I, I could feel the, the, the power of building something and destroying something. I'm feeling my way. I'm feeling my way through life. So we're exploring this whole subject of, uh, of what is it like to, to love well. In fact, the question of the series is, why are our loves so disordered? 
Uh, I remember as a, teen- a teenager, uh, there was a pizza place in our hometown growing up. And uh, it had a buffet. It was unlimited pizza. Uh, that was a dangerous thing for the Capon family. Uh, we, we think, as we would go to a buffet, we would think they lost money today. Uh, that was not a good day for them. And I remember uh, being down there with some buddies, and we are going to come back and watch NFL football. And I was down there, and I am embarrassed to say how many slices of pizza I ate. I will not say it out loud. But we were having a contest, and I won. Uh, just slammed those other guys, no problem, and uh, left them in the trail. They, they stopped around 15 slices. Okay. So, you want to mess with me? Huh? All right. So... Uh, and I remember rolling on the ground in pain in front of that TV set. I don't remember who was playing. I couldn't tell you what. I was in absolute agony. Uh, my desires got the best of me. You see, that's how it works. I remember just feeling everything intensely. Little red wagons. How many had a little red wagon? Hmm? Good. They still, still sell them, right? The radio flyers, right? friend of mine named Tom Barry. Dad was an Air Force mechanic. You can't just have it with the regular wheels. We had mags, big mag wide tires on that thing. You can't just have that little funny little, uh, little uh, what is it, the, the handle, right? We had a steering wheel. His dad figured it out. I was all tricked out. All the kids, we lined up on the top of Ford Street, this huge hill. We're about, oh, maybe all the mature age of seven, maybe nine, maybe nine something like that. And uh, Tom's in front. He's, it's, his, it's his wagon. I'm in the back. I'm the co-pilot. All the kids gather at the top of the hill. We're going to go. We want speed, man. We want speed. We want the speed where the, where the, the moisture's flowing out of your eyes kind of speed. And uh, we go. We push off that hill. And we hear the kids screaming behind us like, you fools. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, uh, because the, the thing growing up, nobody had ever made it down Ford Street Hill. It was too steep. So, uh, you know, we're going to find out how steep it is. We're cruising along. I'm holding on to Tom. We're doing fine. We're getting down to that mock speed. And, uh, uh, you know, you get a little cocky, you know, when you're doing really well and doing something crazy and you're, you're, you know, you've got it figured out. So I turned to Tom. It was the craziest, craziest thing. I'm in the back. I have nothing, I have nothing to do. Just hang on to him. So... Uh, there's uh, orange trees along the side here, and we're cruising along, really doing well. Still hear the kids you know, screaming in the back. And uh, I turn over to Tom, and there's the craziest thing in Southern California in the orange trees. There's uh, ground squirrels, right? There's squirrels. I mean, there's uh, you know, all kinds of squirrels. And uh, they're, uh, they're gophers. And, 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 and what they did is that they're just kind of perched on their little, little hills watching us. Okay? Uh, and so I say, hey, Tom, look at the ground squirrels. So he does. <laughs> so, and you know how he's got, the, he's got the wheel. And you know how when you look, it's, it's something's connected with your hands. You know, so, he, so he looks. <laughs> Kids all screaming. We can hear them. And, it, and everything's in slow motion. You know how that works, right? You've, you're wiping out. And it's like, ha, ah, I'm going to hit the pavement. I know. <laughs> I know. And it's just as slow as possible. And then... Wham! You know, sliding along. You look real closely at my chin. How, guys, chins. How many? How many of you got scars on your chins? There you go. There you go. I still have pieces of asphalt from from uh, Ford, Ford Street Hill somewhere in here. Uh, the craziest, wackiest thing that is not enough for us. 
we got all skinned up, we got all crazy, I remember it was just awful, and we get back home, our parents say, what happened? And we say, Ford Street Hill. The first time I ever heard the word Ford Street Hill, I was even too young, my brother, Jeff, had tried going down it on a skateboard with the old metal wheels. Remember the old metal wheels? Some of you young guys, neoprene, forget that. Those, these are the metal wheels. You hit a little tiny pebble and you're, oh, it's over, right? Remember those? My brother lost his front tooth on Fort Street Hill. So we were not done. We, we were going to make it through down Fort Street Hill. This time we're going on my bike. And we went on this big, I had all these garage sale bikes, big, big bruiser bike, rusting, big old, huge bike, way too big for a nine-year-old. And uh, we're cruising along, and Tom's on the back straddling the fender. You remember that, right? Yeah. Where do you put your feet? On the bolt, on the axle. We're, gonna, we're doing fine. So we're cruising down Fort Street Hill once again, and, I, and we're doing just great. Okay, I want to experience pleasure. I want to experience uh, this speed. I want to experience it. I feel my way through life. And uh, we're cruising along, same group of kids. You know, and at this point, they kind of counsel us. You're crazy. You're insane. You know, what's wrong with you? And we go down the hill, and we're doing just fine. Once again, hit that mock speed, same thing. And uh, I, I'm, I'm getting a little cocky. We're doing fine. I turn to Tom. He's hanging on to me for dear life. And I say, Tom, whatever you do, I scream at that. Whatever you do, don't put your foot in the spokes. That's what I say. Now, does that not sound reasonable? Sure it does. So he's cruising along. He goes, uh, and he says this kind of strangely. He says he kind of goes, uh, okay. And it was kind of uncertain, his answer. And so what I, what I came to know later uh, at the doctor's office um, was, was I came to know that Tom looked down and he adjusted his feet. That's all he was doing. He's just, he's just trying to be, make sure he's to be safe. And at that point, one of his, one of his feet slipped. And I heard this blood-curdling cry. And once again, that slow-motion thing happened again. The, car, the bike is just flipping in the air, and then we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Right? And uh, again, more, more stuff in, in the chin. And absolutely, that was, pretty, that was a big wipeout. Here's the crazy thing. 1954 Chevy. My mom is driving down the hill. She's the first one down the hill to see us. My mom, who has had, I'm the fifth kid. She's used to this. She's unfazed. She takes me and Tom, throws us in the back seat, and takes us down to Dr. Louie. That was his name. Uh, he had no compassion, by the way. He had absolutely <laughs> no compassion. Seriously. And uh, so, am I the only one where your loves get the best of you, you see? And this is, this is the, the strangest thing is, uh, as the country western singer we, we talked about last week, was that the idea that, that all that I love is killing me. See? All that I love is killing me. The loves that uh, are gripping our hearts are expressive of a disordered love and a disordered life follows that. Let's, let's pray for a moment and let's get going on this. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are chasing us down with an ordered love that flows right from the cross. Uh, we, are, we are feeling our way through life, and we struggle, and we're here to lift our hearts to you. We need to hear the Word of God, and uh, we pray that we will hear the Word of God. And more, more than that, we will respond to it uh, and find life in it and find you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, this whole sermon uh, series is an excuse to preach on Isaiah 64, all right? It's just a big excuse to, pre- pre- to preach on a great passage. 
Uh, I say that to say that we're heading to verse 8. So if you want to just look ahead and you want to cheat, you can get there. All right? We're heading to verse 8, but uh, we're going to cruise along verses 1 through 7 to get there. And uh, this is a time period. Let me just kind of give you a, a sense of it. This is a time period when uh, the, the prophet Isaiah was uh, in, the, in the early 700s B.C. Early 700 B.C. It's about, his ministry was about 40 years long. Uh, it's a divided kingdom. There's the northern kingdom, Israel, in the north, and the southern kingdom, Judah, in the south. On the other side of Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided. And here's what's happening. By this time in Isaiah's life, the northern kingdom has been wiped out by Assyria, 722 B.C. The uh, the, uh, Samaria was the capital, and it was captured by the Assyrians. Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah warned the north. He warned the north, and then they got taken out by this huge kingdom called Assyria. Another kingdom is rising called Babylon, and they are some, they are some serious, serious uh, guys to deal with. And um, the Assyrians have also been uh, knocking at the door of Judah, and Isaiah is saying, you've got to change your ways. Don't follow the north. Don't imitate them. Don't go after them. And Judah is really shaky. They only have a few good kings, and it's really, really shaky. And Isaiah is saying, you know what? You've got to listen. You've got to turn around. And what's interesting is that God speaks through Isaiah. And then in this passage, Isaiah 64, Isaiah is speaking himself. Isaiah is praying. These are words from him. This is a prayer from him to God, and he's interceding for Judah. And he, and he knows how serious things are. He knows that a nation could go out of existence. And thus he prays. And let's, uh, let's hear the word of God. Oh, verse 1, 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isn't that awesome? That's a prayer of adoration. Lord, show up. We're in trouble. We need you to come and make things happen again. Uh, that's the opening, opening uh, uh, part of our, our message this morning. It comes as a prayer of adoration. Isaiah knows that if God shows up, powerful things will happen. It keeps going. Verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Oh, to reflect on God, His great power, when he delivered the people from Exodus, and Isaiah's remembering, he said, when, it, when you show up, God, it is awesome. It is, uh, it's beyond our imagination. Take a look at verse 4. Actually, Paul uses this passage as an expression of the gospel. Look at this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Man, as the centuries unfold in, in mankind's history, there's no one like God. And when he shows up, you've never seen anything like it. You've never heard anything like it. You've never imagined anything like it. And that's always the way he is. When he interacts with human beings and when he redeems his people, he comes with a I'm going to blow you away kind of activity. And Isaiah knows this. Isaiah knows that if God comes and invades in time and begins to act, it will be of, of great proportion and extraordinary. Well, 
it goes on. Again, it's like a prayer of adoration. Look at verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. You're intimate. You're, you are not a distant deity. You are, you are intimately involved with people who, uh, who are righteous and obey you. Uh, you're faithful to your covenant. Behold, look at verse, uh, end of verse 5. Behold, you were angry. You were angry. And we sinned. In our sins, look at this beautiful phrase. It's a beautiful, it's a sad phrase. In our sins, we have been a long time. Uh, and he's speaking for the people. And now there's this rhetorical question. It's, 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 he's on the edge. We have really been slumbering in rebellion. Um, here's an important question. Can we be saved? Will you once again visit us? Look at the end of verse, uh, verse 5. And shall we be saved? Oh, the targets of their, uh, the targets of their desires. Uh, they sold out to other nations. They brought in other gods. They were rebellious. They had desires for comfort, for significance, for power, uh, for... Um, uh, they were very much like you and I. Uh, they wanted to feel good things. They, they wanted to experience uh, uh, pleasure. And now they realize they have been turning away from the living God. And, it's get, and it gets worse. Look at verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Look at that. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. Oh, there's this overwhelming sense that sin is making them kind of weightless. Listen to that. Sin pursued, rebellion sought after has left them like leaves. Weightless. It's interesting to study the word glory in the Bible. It's actually a derivative of the word weight, weightiness. When God's glory touched down on Mount Sinai, there was a weight about it. The idols are weightless. It's very interesting that uh, uh, Nietzsche, a philosopher years ago, Nietzsche's the one who observed that in turning away from God, Western civilization was becoming weightless. It was, no lo- it was floating in midair. It had no longer had any kind of substance to it in the turning away from God. Well, Isaiah, let's go a little bit deeper in our sin. Look at this, verse 7. There is no one who calls on your name. We are so self-sufficient. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. Who, who even, there's no one even doing self-talk. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Wake up. Hey, come to the temple, offer prayer. Uh, lift up your heart to God. Get, get out of this mess. Turn away. No one's even thinking that way. No one is, is doing self-reflection. Isaiah is speaking for the people, and it's interesting, he's speaking for himself. You have hidden your face from us and have, look at this phrase, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Disordered loves generate disordered lives. I'll say that again. Disordered loves generate disordered lives. 
There's no longer any pretending in this passage, is there? There's no longer any pretense. It's very important for religious people to get to this point. Really important. Uh, They had been in their sin for a long time. It had worked. Uh, Offer something in the sack at the temple? Sure. Temple was still functioning. Uh, uh, Get on with your life and uh, pursue falsehood and idols. Gone on for a long time. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, what is the most significant thing that you believe is the most significant thing to pursue? Uh, what, what if we asked you, the thing that makes your life, defines your life, that, that you are putting at the highest priority, you fill in the blank, what is the most significant thing? And it could be, could be family. Uh, that's a good thing. But it's now become uh, not just a significant thing, it's become an, an ultimate thing. Uh, it could be your, your job and your progress in your job. Uh, it could be your overall well-being and your sense of safety, your sense of uh, good life, sense of I'm experiencing things in a good way. What is the highest thing you're putting, saying, look, this is where my energies go, this is where my loves go, this is where, this is where it goes? You have to ask that question. And then you have to experience, are you ready? The foolishness of it. To put something that is good and make it ultimate. And uh, like the kid who, who, who ate too much pizza, do you, think I, do, you think I, do you think that was the last time I ever, ever overate? Do you think? Oh, I hope I want to meet you. I want to talk with you if you think that. I have still yet to understand the lesson of that pizza place so many years ago. Do you see that we have to reach bottom in some way or another we have to have a consciousness about, Lord, I will keep going, replacing you with other things. I am incessant. I can't stop it. I, I, I feel all kinds of things. I target my love after all sorts of things. I am driven by my, by my needs. My needs come to me as all legitimate of course, our culture says every need, every possible whim of your imagination is legitimate. Really, talk to the 60s generation. Talk to those who abused their bodies, who lived out every possible pleasure and didn't quite make it to 50. Disordered loves lead to disordered lives. And Isaiah says, let's have some honesty here. And what's going to break through? Because there's a big question still hanging in the air in this room right now. Why should God come through? God's been with them for a long time. Why should he save them yet again? And it's interesting. What arises out of, this, of the ashes of this rebellion is really quite remarkable. Verse 8. But now... O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. It's interesting they don't say, O Lord, you are our creator, because it would make sense in all that clay imagery, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make sense that they would say, you're the creator? Oh, no. 
Oh, Lord, you are our Father. You know, there are some people who think that when Jesus spoke of the fatherhood of God, that's a new idea. Some people think that Jesus introduced some new idea coming out of nowhere and that the fatherhood of God is not taught in the Old Testament. Not true. In fact, rising out of this state of wickedness and disordered loves is a cry from the heart, oh, but you are our father and we are like clay. It's always been that way, hasn't it, God? It's always been that we are weak and we can't shape ourselves. We don't know ourselves. You are sovereign. You are the one who makes us. You're the one that, uh, to whom we belong. Hasn't it always been that way? You are our Father. And uh, what I want to say to you today is this, is that so many of our attempts uh, at, at love, at loving things, is a sense of being, of of belonging, a sense of of having a place where you're finally feeling comfort and and a sense of being a person and and being alive. And you know, none of our pursuits in this life can ever bring that home. God has designed you in such a way that his fatherly care is, is what you've been wired for. And the, the beginning of renewal for our hearts is to say, Lord, what I'm really chasing down, I'm really chasing a sense of belonging. I'm chasing a sense of well-being. I'm chasing a sense of connectedness. I'm chasing something. And I don't know what it is, but in the gospel we find out it's God. And Jesus comes as the one sent by the Father to help us with our disordered loves. Jesus comes to invite us into this happy world of the Trinity where there is this extraordinary sense of belonging, this extraordinary sense of well-being, this deep, deep happiness. And we are autonomous and uh, free-floating in our lives and we can never, ever pull off the kind of happiness that we have been made for. We will always be putting secondary things as primary. And when we get to the bottom and when we, we experience the painful sense, if I keep going like this, I'm going to float away. I'm not going to exist anymore. I'm going to be like a leaf. My iniquities are causing me to melt away that sense of weightlessness, that sense of I am disconnected to what is weighty and what is lasting. If that comes over you, the Father is chasing you. The Father is revealing himself to you. And what a beautiful thing that is. What's going on in this passage is that Isaiah is saying, you know what, we've been busy and we have deeds, but they're not righteous. We've been active, but we've been dead inside. We need new life. And so what does the gospel do? The gospel is about the father sending his son and saying, here, you'll find life. But the gospel is also about us discovering 
that unless God acts, we will turn away even from his son. How did we receive his son when he lived on this earth? You see, wouldn't it be beautiful that the Father would come and come through in order to save these people? And the answer is, he does. And the Son comes. The Son comes to bring the the fatherly love to welcome sinners home. And what do we do with this one who was sent? We reject him. We turn away from him. And we say we can fabricate a life on our own. We don't need him. And the Father lets us have our way with him, as it were. And the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities really represent all of mankind. And what we do is we put his son on a cross, and we think we're going to be free. And we go away, and we're still enslaved. And here's the truth, the Father says. I'm going to still love you, and I'm going to pursue you with the love of a son who dies and is buried and is resurrected and is ascended and is now the king, and he pursues his enemies. And he brings to us this awareness of our deep rebellion, and he comes and pursues us with his spirit. And we've already read it in this service, Romans 8, 14. All those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And he's given us the spirit of adoption whereby we've been given the spirit and we cry out, Abba, Creator, no. We cry out, Abba, what? Mm, That's it. We are longing for fatherly love. And God must put that longing in us before we'll ever desire it. We desire it and move and believe. It is there, but it is not our pursuit. It's an awareness, but it is not our love. And the Spirit of God puts this love in us at our regeneration. When we are born again, this love is within us. And it rises to awareness. The Spirit brings the gospel to to bear upon us and say, your Father has done this. Your Heavenly Father has done this. It is his idea to separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. It is his idea to plan salvation and to send the Son. Who communicates this to us? The Word of God and the Spirit is active to communicate that though your sins be as scarlet, he has washed them as white as snow. And so, let us as a church pursue this ordered love that flows from the Father. Where the Father and His will is done by the Son and it is applied to us in the power of the Spirit. Let us pursue the cry of the Father. As we come to the end of our idol uh, producing, as we experience once again the futility of our efforts and we pursue the God who first pursued us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Father love. You are reordering our lives in such a powerful way because you are working at the level of desire. We cry out to you. You are our Father. We've always been clay. You're the potter, and you shape us. Lord, would you shape in us desire, shape in us passion, Shape in us 
a willingness that flows from love, a willingness to obey, a willingness to do, because you are so good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.